Good morning. It's nice to have a voice again. It should be more pleasant for me, at least, uh, this week. Thank you for those of you who prayed for me. I know several of you did. I really appreciate that. Uh, we are going to wrap up our study of the epistle of 1 Timothy this morning. We're going to look at the back half of chapter 5, and then we'll wrap up with all of chapter 6 this morning. Well, let's do a quick recap of um, what we covered last week, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll get into our text this morning. So last week, we covered chapter 4, and we were looking at the content of false teaching. First Timothy has been a heavy emphasis on false teaching that Timothy was dealing with in the church in Ephesus. And we looked at some of the content of the false teaching where uh, Paul was addressing the idea of asceticism and pointed out that this false teaching had actually demonic influence behind it, that it wasn't just of human origin. And we talked about how asceticism attempts to worship God by self-denial according to human uh, religion and human precepts rather than what God has ordained. And we looked at how Timothy uh, was to be trained for godliness in verses 6 through 10. And then in verses 11 through 16, he was to be this example for the flock. So he was to be trained in godliness himself and then to be an example for the church there in Ephesus. And we saw how Paul urged Timothy uh, multiple times to teach the flock. Uh, In verses 6 and verse 11, command and teach these things. And this underlines this truth that we fortify ourselves against error with the truth. And we need to be reminded of the truth multiple times because we're prone to forget it. And so we need to hear it over and over and over again. And then uh, finally, we looked at uh, the first part of chapter 5 last week. And we talked about the structure of chapter 5, how uh, Paul is uh, describing to Timothy what it looks like to honor various members of the church. We looked at uh, especially the elderly in verses 1 and 2, and then we looked at care for widows in verses 3 through 16. So let me pray for us, and then we'll pick up with uh, verse 17 of chapter 5. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for uh, your word. We pray that you would illuminate to our hearts. Uh, We pray especially for our own hearts as we uh, look at contentment this morning, that you would help us to be a contented people, uh, that we would rest in your provision and your care for us, and that we would be content with what you have sovereignly ordained for us. Uh, We do pray that you would give us grace, that you'd be with us this morning. We pray for all the children upstairs. Lord, that you would redeem in each and every one they might be united to Christ and found in him on the last day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning we're going to to continue in verse uh, 17, and we're right in the middle of this section where Paul has been describing what it looks like to honor different members, groups within the church. So we're going to look at ministers in 17 through uh, 25, and then he's going to talk about slaves and masters at the very beginning of chapter 6. So 5.17 says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. 
Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. All right, so jumping back up to verse um, 17 here. Paul is moving to this third group that we're looking at, which is elders. Um, In the PCA, we have two classes of elders. We have teaching and ruling elders. Teaching elders refers to those who are serving in the full-time ministry of the Word. And I think those are the the class of elders that Paul is referring to here when he says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, the word labor implies hard work. We talked about this earlier uh, in chapter 3 when we're looking at the elder and deacon qualifications. And the idea is that the work of the ministry is difficult. It's hard work. It's draining. And therefore, it is eminently worthy of compensation, as Paul is going to describe. And this double honor that he's talking about means not only the honor due to an officer by virtue of their office of being an elder, but also the honor of providing for their physical welfare as well. So this is the honor of them receiving their compensation from the congregation because of their work. So providing for a minister's needs is a foundational way that we show honor uh, to Dennis in our context. Paul here uh, quotes two scripture passages in uh, verse 18. uh, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Uh, This is Deuteronomy uh, 25, 4, excuse me. And the idea is that one who works for something should be allowed to benefit from it. Uh, Paul also quotes this in 1 Corinthians 9 when he's describing the duty of congregations to care for their pastors, uh, their physical needs. And he's kind of arguing from the lesser to the greater, that if it would be unkind to a beast to not allow it to you know, reap some of the benefit from its labor, how much more so for a minister of the gospel? And that's exactly what Matthew Henry says in his commentary. He says, if God is concerned for the well-being of oxen who thresh grain that perishes, how much more so for the well-being of his servants who break the bread of life? And then the second quote here is Luke ten seven. the laborer deserves his wages. Again, this idea that it's the duty of the congregation to see that its ministers are well provided for. So the first way that we honor our elders is to provide for their physical needs. And then the, the second way is in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the, the second way that we show honor is not, a, not permitting a frivolous charge against an elder, but only a charge that is actually well substantiated. Um, this should sound familiar to you if you're familiar with your Bible. Uh, it's referenced to Deuteronomy. It's actually a couple places in Deuteronomy. Uh, one of them is 19.15, which says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And Christ quotes this himself in Matthew 18 when he's talking about conflict resolution in the church. where You go to the offending brother one-on-one, and then uh, that second step, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the biblical model here is that a formal accusation against anyone must be substantiated. So as we think about what Paul says here, this requirement of two or three witnesses 
that we see in Deuteronomy and Matthew 18 applies to everyone, right? It's not just elders. So why does Paul reiterate it here for elders specifically? And I think he's concerned that an elder's reputation not be trashed by hearsay or kind of a frivolous accusation. Um, Calvin pointed out that godly ministers are particularly exposed to slander and to insult because of their public-facing and difficult duties. And so even if they do them correctly and appropriately, they're still likely to experience criticism because of that. And I think, too, part of the role includes discipline as we think about the role of an elder. And so uh, no one likes discipline, right? So it would be actually quite easy for someone who is the subject of discipline uh, to destroy an elder's reputation with rumors or unfounded accusations against them. So I think that's why this, Paul's re- reiterating this and why this is so important. Well, verse 20, though, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Right, so if there is an actual sin issue, habitual sin in the life of an elder, public sin, then public rebuke should follow. Right? Public sin calls for public rebuke. Um, Elder or Calvin, again, pointed out, elders are supposed to be this example to the flock. That's what Paul has been exhorting Timothy all along. And so if they're doing the opposite, right, then there needs to be a rebuke as a warning to the flock and to assure the flock that the elders are being held accountable. And Paul is speaking here of this habitual or public or egregious sins which lead to public scandal, um, not to kind of, I don't want to say that there's such a thing as a light sin, but not to like a minor fault that people can ordinarily deal with themselves one-on-one, right? We still follow that Matthew 18 process. When he says, so that the rest may stand in fear, uh, this certainly refers to the rest of the elders. I think it, res- it can refer to the entire congregation as a whole um, in the sense that, you know, discipline of any member should cause us some sober kind of reflection uh, on ourselves because if we're honest, we should recognize that none of us are incapable of falling into some form of sin. And then finally, in 21, uh, this speaks to the process of conducting investigation and censure. And Paul is stressing here that it has to be absolutely impartial. So Paul's charging Timothy here in the strongest language, referencing the heavenly court here, uh, that, that there's this extreme importance of judging without prejudice or favoritism. And then continuing on in verse 22, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Uh, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Uh, This is a reference to ordination. That's the laying on of hands occurs at ordination. Um, So Paul's comment here is advice that ordination uh, not be performed quickly or without due consideration. In other words, a man should be tested first according to those qualifications that we looked at in 1 Timothy 3. And then only after a thorough examination and demonstrated fitness should one be elected and installed in office. We talked about in those character qualifications, how they're pretty much all character-based. And character is something that's proven over time. It's not something that you can know on day one. And so that's why this advice is so pertinent not to be hasty, because you need to see that demonstrated fitness over time. Um, the second part of the verse is kind of interesting. It's a little trickier to understand. This is all part of the same idea. So he says, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So at a face value reading of this, um, it sounds like he's saying we're to refrain from sin and be godly, and that's certainly true. That's in line with the purpose of the letter of how we are to behave in the household of God. We're to be like God to pursue godliness. 
But I think this does still relate to the idea of um, not being hasty in the laying on of hands, and it's related to elders. And I think the connection here, one of the commentators pointed out that um, keeping oneself pure as an elder actually involves some measure of guarding the office in a good way, right? Lest we be guilty of damaging the purity of the church by admitting someone who's not fit for office. So rashly ordaining someone who's unfit for office or even lifting church censure too quickly uh, related to that rebuke is to partake in their sin by ignoring the qualifications for office or treating sin lightly. So that's the, that's the connection there. And then in as he's talking about purity here, we have almost this kind of aside in verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Uh, Paul's kind of immediately qualifying this reference about, or this, this uh, comment about purity of life by saying that it doesn't mean uh, drinking only water, which I think is an ascetic practice. We talked about asceticism last week. Um, and so he's saying there's no godliness in these types of practices or refraining from lawful things just for the sake of refraining. Now, there are, of course, legitimate reasons to refrain from lawful things like wine. Uh, we think of the weaker brother. Uh, some people have a, ten- a tendency to misuse this, to uh, succumb to alcoholism. So if you're that person, then you need to exercise wisdom and refrain. Um, and then, of course, setting aside time for prayer and fasting. Those are a few of the reasons that we might legitimately refrain from lawful things. But he's saying that refraining apart from those reasons is not a mark of purity of life. And to underline this point, he actually reminds Timothy of the practical benefit of uh, using, this, the, using the wine medicinally. Um, so he's warning Timothy against practicing self-discipline at the expense of his health. Right? We're to take good care of our bodies. I think, too, this statement here is a little bit of a, a rebuttal against perhaps an impulse in the church to expect supernatural solutions to all of life's problems, such as refusing to go to the doctor and just praying for healing, as an example. Uh, The reality is God uses means, right? So he uses them in the physical world to bring about his purposes. And he also uses them spiritually to bring about his purposes. So he uses people in the church to teach one another. That's a means that God has provided. Uh, He uses us to rebuke one another, to encourage one another, rather than just working maturity in people kind of independent of life in the local church. All right, and then um, wrapping this paragraph up, verses 24 and 25, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Um, I think he's returning, we had this parenthetical aside in 23, and then I think he's returning to his main point about uh, being cautious to ordain someone that we saw in 22. Um, And the point is that the church should observe a man's life and evaluate his character before installing him in office. Because while some sins are obvious, um, others appear later. Others are less apparent, but they will become evident over time with careful examination. And similarly, Uh, Fitness for office can also be judged by these good works. If one is faithfully serving the church, even behind the scenes or unbeknownst to most people, that it is actually a testimony of their character that will come out. That's why these good works are conspicuous. As we think about the, the church more broadly, I think it's also an encouragement to the church that all evil will eventually be judged, right? We see all manner of evil in this world, all manner of injustice, Uh, But we know that God is just. God will judge uh, wickedness. 
And so we have only to wait and see the recompense of the wicked, though we might not see it in this life. And verse 25 is also an encouragement to everyone who's serving in the church, whether an officer or not. Uh, that in some sense, no one actually serves behind the scenes because God sees all and he will reward everyone for the, the work that they do in faith. I love uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight in that regard. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So nothing that we do for the Lord is in vain. And that is a great encouragement because it might often feel like that to us, that, you know, what are we doing? What are we accomplishing here? This feels like a waste of time. But we have this promise of God to his children that no good deed is wasted, that nothing that we do is actually fruitless. Um, if anyone gives one of these a cup of water for my sake, he will by no means lose his reward. We have that word of Christ. Uh, so as Hebrews 10.24 says, let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So continuing on in chapter 6, we're going to continue this theme of honoring groups in the church, church members. And Paul's going to pivot now to discussing uh, the master and slave relationship. So 6, 1 and 2, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So Paul's um, teaching here mirrors his teaching in 1 Peter 2 and Ephesians 6, uh, that he's not coming out to abolish the practice of slavery in the Roman world, um, I think we see throughout Paul's writings that he's really less concerned with people's temporal state than their spiritual state. And these are a specific application of, I think, his more general teaching in 1 Corinthians 7 that we're going to read. Uh, to be faithful in whatever calling you have, wherever God has placed you, whatever station of life you're in, even, it's one, even if it's one of uh, menial service, then we are to be faithful in that position. Um, listen to this from 1 Corinthians 7. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So I think what Paul is saying here is that even for those who are in this unenviable position of slavery that they have this um, duty to God to honor their masters, to be respectful and submissive, and to serve them well, knowing that they're really serving Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. So Paul, throughout his teachings on this, uh, consistently describes rendering uh, good service in terms of glorifying God. Um, and then in First um, Timothy, he's saying, um, rather than seeing spiritual quality, so a believing master, rather than seeing the spiritual quality as a reason 
um, not to serve well, it's actually all the more reason because you're serving for the honor of Christ and for the good of a brother in Christ. We see Paul, Paul's rationale here for this voluntary and submission or voluntary um, and cheerful service is the glory of God. So the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Uh, we think, you know, even in uh, the even in worldly morality in the Roman world, right? Submitting to authority is valued. That's something that is seen as good in that society. So a servant here who is converted and then stops obeying their master would display worse behavior as a result of that conversion, which would reflect poorly on the gospel. And so uh, a Christian slave who disrespected their master would cause the name of God to be reviled by outsiders who saw this new religion as causing rebellion. So I think the principle of that example for us is that we should actually be more concerned with God's glory and how our our actions reflect on God's glory uh, than with our own glory, our own circumstances. We should have that lens as we think about our decisions. How does what we do glorify God or not? And in this teaching, as we think about the actions of the slave here glorifying God, Paul's actually elevating the standing of the slave, even in this slavery. Right? That he's not preaching uh, revolutionary change or a resigned acceptance of the status quo, but that the slave is truly an ambassador for Christ right where he is. And so by serving well, he's saying that you are promoting the gospel uh, and, and thus elevating this menial work to one of eternal significance. Um, so to bring this back to kind of our day and age, as we think about our own context, our own world, I think this is a challenge to our own work ethic, to our own attitude to our superiors at work. Right? Do we give 100%? We give 100% day in and day out. Or are we distracted at work, constantly crawling the internet or checking our phones or doing other things with our time? Right? We're called to work diligently and to work well for our employers, to give our best. Um, as, our, as believers, I think what Paul is saying here is that our work actually reflects on God's name and can support or detract from the proclamation of the gospel. We also need to think about our attitude toward our superiors. Uh, there can be a great temptation, I think, to gossip about our boss um, everyone has their foibles, especially whoever your current manager is, and it can be a lot of, uh, it can be very tempting, right, to, to talk about those foibles with other coworkers, you know, for their amusement. But we're called to respect our superiors in speech as well as to do the tasks we're assigned with excellence. So we're going to move on to the next section. Here, Paul's going to start. Uh, start a new section here, kind of coming back to uh, false teaching once again. It's been a big theme in First Timothy. Uh, picking up in the second half of verse 2, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. All right, so if anyone teaches a different doctrine, we're returning to the the idea of the false teaching, um, and different doctrine, uh, the scripture is a source of truth, right? This is how we know what is true. This is how we discern truth from error. Um, This is how we know if something is actually a different doctrine or if it is the doctrine of Christ. 
So we need to be good uh, Bereans in the example of Acts, weighing what we hear against the word of God. That's how we know what is true. And Paul gives us here several attributes of the false teachers, uh, that they are uh, puffed up with conceit and understand nothing in verse 4. Uh, one would have to be proud to reject the words of Christ for one's own imaginings. Kind of the idea that we get here with uh, these speculations we've been talking about. Uh, but Matthew Henry pointed out that pride and ignorance go together. I think that's actually true. We see that throughout Proverbs. We have these pairings that wisdom and humility go together and pride and ignorance go together as well. Um, the false, teachi- or false teachers uh, also have this craving for controversy or quarreling. Um, and that reveals that this difference of opinion that they're espousing is not prompted by a genuine quest for knowledge, but is really an expression of vanity, seeking to uh, display their own intellectual prowess. We have this comparison uh, between the sound words and the unhealthy craving. This word sound here in verse 3, actually, it literally means healthy. So he's making a direct contrast. He's saying there's health, the healthy words of Christ versus the unhealthy craving for controversy. Uh, so the teaching of Christ is sound, it's healthy, it strengthens, it nourishes, it builds up the body of Christ, it heals wounds of sin, builds up the disheartened. But these unhealthy controversies and the conceit of the false teachers weaken the body. They, they produce envy and dissension and slander in the church, which ultimately destroy it. One of the commentators pointed out that envy, dissension, and slander actually build on each other if we think of this atmosphere of the false teachers uh, where they're going to be envious of each other uh, from, from anyone who has a more brilliant speculation than they do, right? Because it's all about speculations and genealogies and these kind of fanciful things. And then dissension because they're going to be quarreling over such speculations. And then slander as they speak ill of one another in these fruitless debates. And ultimately we see that uh, their motive here is uh, material gain. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Uh, so this is their motivation for rejecting uh, the clear teaching of Scripture, the practical words, the healthy words of Christ. Um, and we think, I think in our own day and age, right, of the health and wealth gospel, right, this idea that God will give you a life free of suffering, which he has not promised to do. Uh, we have that kind of idea. And any of these these false teachings um, come, it says, because they are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. You know, the truth will set you free, but the lack of truth causes all manner of chaos in the church. And Paul has a great rejoinder to this idea, uh, imagining godliness as a means of gain. In verse 6, he says, uh, godliness is great gain, but it's just not gain in the way that the false teachers assume. Let's read 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving sorry, that some have wandered away from the faith, and pierced themselves with many pangs. So one of this, uh, this great gain of godliness is growth in contentment. So what is contentment? Paul gives us a definition in Philippians. Philippians 4. He 
he's writing to the church there, and he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So he's describing contentment as knowing how to properly endure need and how to handle abundance. Last year, I think it was, I read uh, a great book by Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Um, If any of you have not read it, I heartily recommend it. Or if you've not read it in a long time, it's worth rereading. And Jeremiah Burroughs says this, he says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. He says that it's this art and this mystery that has to be learned. It's a skill of Christian living. It's not something that comes naturally to us. Um, one of the commentators on First Timothy pointed out that the word contentment uh, literally means self-sufficiency, and it comes from, it's based on the, the self-sufficiency of God himself. So God's self-sufficiency means that he is ultimately and supremely content. God, of course, alone is the only one who is actually self-sufficient. But our contentment is also tied to that. Right? We have to, to um, realize satisfaction in Christ and our relationship with Christ rather than our present circumstances to experience contentment. I don't think contentment is particularly hard for us to grasp intellectually, but it's one of those things that it's actually quite difficult to really put into practice when life isn't turning out the way you want it to, right? So, and this happens all the time. We feel the work, or we feel the curse in our work, right? We have frustration, uh, tension, uh, repetitive tasks, things seem futile. Uh, we have relationship problems all the time. Some of us are beset by loneliness or health issues or financial stress. Um, and the reality is that some of those circumstances are not guaranteed to change, Right? And our material position in life is also not guaranteed to improve. Uh, but if we grow in contentment, then our joy and our satisfactions in the blessings and the good things that we do have will increase to our great benefit, as Paul is describing here. We can, someone can have it all. right? They can have everything that you can have in this world and be absolutely miserable. And we've probably met people that have far less than we do and yet seem to be just like overflowing with joy. Um, and so the difference then is that level of contentment, not in the amount of possessions or comforts that we have. Um, I think part of contentment is also knowing and resting in the fact that God is a sovereign and a loving Father, and that He actually does what is best for us. So contentment rests in God's providence, even if we are experiencing suffering, crying out with the psalmist, "How long, O Lord?" You know, desiring those circumstances to change. Um, before we move on to uh, Paul's next verses here, I want to bring up one other thing that Jeremiah Burroughs mentioned in his book, um, and that is the question of whether or not Christ himself is enough for us, which I think is really at the heart of contentment. He references uh, 1 Samuel 1.8. Uh, many of you know the, the story of Hannah, right? Um, Hannah wants children more than anything, and, and she can't have them. And so we, let's read 3 through 8 here. Uh, Now this man, her husband, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, 
But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And Burroughs pointed out that Christ says the same to us. Am I not more to you than ten sons? What do we desire so greatly that Christ is not enough for us? Surely that is idolatry in our hearts. Right? What do we lack that's so devastating that Christ and his benefits, what he's done for us uh, in redeeming us, doesn't outweigh that loss? Uh, so we need to pray for the heart of the psalmist. Right? Think of Psalm 73, right? Whom have I in heaven in, you know, but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In describing contentment in 1 Timothy, Paul says this in verse 7. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So he's describing that the believer should actually be able to be content with just the basic necessities of life, that this is all one truly needs. And we are pilgrims passing through this world. Right? We're looking forward to this marvelous inheritance we have in the saints, in the new heavens and the new earth. Matthew Henry pointed out that when Paul says we brought nothing into the world, he's um, checking our propensity to entitlement. Right? He's saying you, don't, you aren't actually owed anything. God doesn't owe you anything. Uh, we came naked and helpless into the world. Uh, whatever we have had since, we were obliged to the providence of God for it. Right? Our existence itself is this gift. In our earliest years, we're cared for by others entirely. Um, and so even if we're reduced to poverty during our pilgrimage, it's no less than we were born with. And we need to exercise trust that God will provide for us during the remainder of our time here on earth. Calvin said, our covetousness is a bottomless pit unless it is restrained. And the best way to keep it in check is to desire nothing other than the necessities of life. In order to be content with what is sufficient for us, we must learn to control our desires. But again, it's this idea that we're not born content. It's actually this skill. It's something we have to work on and to practice. I think sometimes God uses hardship to teach us reliance on him and to display his faithfulness to us. I'm always challenged when I read uh, in the Pentateuch about the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness, and how much manna does God provide for them at a time? One, yeah, one day, one day. That's challenging. If I only had enough bank in, you know, money in my bank account to provide food for my family for one day, I would be extremely stressed. Right? That, that would be a very, very trying situation to be in. Uh, but God has promised to provide. He is faithful. Um, uh, you know, to my own personal chagrin, I feel like I've found that it's possible to trust God for salvation. At least I think I'm trusting him for salvation. And yet be anxious about very trivial matters that are you know, happening in the, in the near future. You know, something that's going to happen next week that I'm worried about. And the reality is God is faithful. If I'm trusting him with the salvation of my internal soul, or that I'm not going to be damned to hell forever, why on earth do I not trust him with small details of life. It's a very skewed perspective on reality that we have. 
All right, so we have these basic uh, necessities of life that the believer should be content with. And Paul says in verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Uh, So we have this contrast with the contentment and then this desire to be rich. Um, And I want to point out that it says those who desire, not those who are. So Paul isn't saying that the riches themselves are inherently bad, but the desire for them is extremely dangerous. Uh, Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Right? The Lord is the one who gives wealth, ultimately. So it's possible to be rich and not succumb to the love of money. It's possible to be rich and have a heart full of generosity. Um, the desire, that, you know, the, the difference is how you think about the money, not necessarily how much of it you have. Um, and this desire to be rich plunges people into ruin and destruction, as Paul says. Um, and he says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil in verse 10. Um, so it causes uh, ruin. There's a uh, saying, those who desire to be rich also desire to be rich quickly, which I think is usually true. Um, and that causes problems, right? We think of all sorts of um, scams that have been found out, right? Like Ponzi schemes, insurance fraud, Medicare fraud. This is going on all the time, and people are constantly being caught and then jailed and temporarily ruined, right, because of this desire to be rich quickly. Um, it's, a, it's a classic example of what Paul is describing here. Um, and this love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Uh, this love is truly responsible for all kinds of evil that people commit, not just fraud. We think of um, theft, also like judicial and governmental corruption, quarrels, hatred, even murder, right, caused by greed. Uh, it's probably not an overstatement to say that most crimes are greed-oriented. The, the uh, classic investigative technique is to look for motive, right? And what is the most common motive? It's probably follow the money. One of the commentators, Jeffrey Wilson, said this, the sentiment is that there is no kind of evil to which the love of money may not lead men once it fairly takes hold of them. That is a chilling statement. I think it's probably true if we think about the, the fairly sordid history of humanity. And then the greatest evil of all, verse 10, through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Right? That is the greatest ruin someone can experience, is spiritual ruin. Uh, wealth can easily mask our spiritual poverty. I think that's why um, Christ said it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Proverbs 30, 8 through 9 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that prayer of give me neither poverty nor riches, but what is needful for me. Um, anyone who's, who desires to be rich, who loves money, is ultimately worshiping something other than God. So the question is, how long can you do that and not wander away from the faith? Right? Whatever we idolize draws us away from God. And so it is ultimately a snare. It doesn't give us what we're seeking. It's a bait and a switch. True peace and joy and satisfaction are found in Christ alone. And we find those things by resting in him. In Matthew uh, 6, Christ's teaching here, 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Christ is challenging us uh, where our treasure is. Where is your heart? What do you love? And who is your master? You cannot serve God and money. It's, it comes back to commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? Who are we actually worshiping? And I think we kind of mentioned this already, but this desire for wealth can be motivated by a lack of trust in God's provision. Right? We think that wealth brings financial security and frees us from worry. And so can, the, you know, the next paragraph here in Christ's teaching in Matthew 6 is all about do not be anxious. Right? Consider the birds. Consider the flowers. Are you not much more valuable than they are? God will surely care for you. Uh, the next section here, picking up in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So Paul is telling Timothy to flee these things, to flee the sin, to flee the love of money, and instead to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So Timothy is this man of God, this example to the flock there in Ephesus, is to flee these things, to run away, and not only to run away from sin, but to run towards, to pursue virtue. Nature abhors a vacuum, right? so in the same way, we can't just stop sinning. We actually need to fill our lives with virtuous behaviors um, and habits. Matthew Henry said, it's not enough that men of God flee these things, but they must follow after what is directly, directly contrary thereto. Right? So pursuing virtue is part of how we mortify sin. Like how Peter puts it in Second Peter one three, uh, when he says in verse five, for this reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, etc. Make every effort. We're to be serious about pursuing virtue. And how do we pursue it? Well, last week we talked about uh, this training for godliness and the means of grace, right? The spiritual disciplines. And we need to pray for these virtues, right? Ultimately, God is the one who changes our hearts. He is the one who sanctifies us, who grows us up into Christ Jesus. And so we need to start by praying for them, pray that the Lord would work these virtues in us. All right, verse 12, Timothy is to fight the good fight of the faith. Now, that should sound familiar from chapter 1. Paul is now 
coming to the conclusion of his letter, and he's starting to recapitulate some of these earlier themes. He's summing, summing up here. Uh, we talked about uh, how Timothy is engaged in this, uh, this warfare of, of the public ministry of the word and how the Christian life itself is described as warfare. Uh, we have warfare uh, against the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. First uh, Peter 2.9 describes sin as waging war against our souls. Ephesians 6, this famous passage about um, girding up, putting on the armor of God. Second uh, Corinthians 10, we do not wage warfare according to the weapons of the flesh. Um, so the reality is that we are engaged in this warfare, in this cosmic struggle, and it's hard fighting. Right? The weeds keep coming back as we've talked about before. So we, it's, it's a daily battle against sin in our hearts. We need to regularly be repenting of those sins and striving for holiness using the means of grace and in fellowship and community with the local church. So fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Um, this is an encouragement to press on, knowing that eternal life is this reward that's being held out for us. Uh, Wilson, again, said this is not a prize to be won at the end of one's life since Timothy is exhorted to take hold of it now in the midst of the fight, right? So it's to realize by faith what we already possess in Christ, to basically live with this future-oriented perspective that the future is invading the present and changing our perspectives about what we're living for. Um, I like what Paul says in Philippians 3, Uh, describing a single-mindedness. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, in Christ Jesus. Right, so we're to set aside worldly confidence, boasting, possessions as the rubbish they are, and to press on. Uh, like Christ, we must be about the Father's business, and yet all the time resting in Him to make us persevere, as it happens in His strength. Uh, Paul here references, in verse 12, uh, the good confession that Timothy has made in the presence of many witnesses. And he repeats that same word, good confession, talking about Christ uh, and his testimony before Pontius Pilate. And he's telling Timothy, you started well, don't stop now. Right? You must also end well, continue to carry out your ministry, to fulfill it, to walk blamelessly. And as an encouragement to do this, to hold fast this confession, he reminds him of two things. He reminds him who is watching in verse 12. Uh, in the presence of many witnesses, right? So he says there's many people before whom he made this profession who would be ashamed if he failed to continue in a manner worthy of the gospel. So he is, that's, a, that's an exhortation for him to continue because of that, because of these witnesses. And then also God himself is watching. He says in the presence of God. Um, so he's got these witnesses who, are, who should be motivation for him to carry on to fulfill his ministry well. 
And then he also has the reminder of who he serves as motivation. So Paul is charging Timothy in light of uh, God as creator, so God who gives life to all things, and then Jesus as Savior, when he says as Christ Jesus, um, who himself testified to the truth before Pilate. Uh, This is motivation for Timothy himself to walk blamelessly, to do the work of the ministry. So he is to recognize that he is serving his Lord and Savior in his service, and Christ himself finished well, who gave up his life unto death for the church. So Timothy is to be ready to do the same, right? to lay down his life day by day for the good of his own uh, church in Ephesus day after day. And then after describing Christ's uh, faithfulness, Paul erupts in praise in 15 and 16. Uh, he says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And I want to point out how closely this mirrors his doxology in chapter 1 as well. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's almost identical. But this glory of God that he is describing here is the motivation for Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith, to strive for holiness, to keep the commandment unstained, to serve well. This motivation is based on the glory of God and the majesty of his person, which Paul is describing here. This is the God that Timothy will stand before, and this is the God that uh, each of us will stand before at the end of our days uh, to give account. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who dwells in unapproachable light. I think this is also, I mean, that, that, that sounds scary, right? But this is also encouragement uh, to Timothy as he faces opposition, right? That those who hinder Timothy's work are nothing by contrast, whether they're individual false teachers or even worldly authorities and governments who are opposing the gospel, that this is our God. He is the only God. There is no other. Those who oppose him will not endure or succeed. And then uh, 17 through 19, getting toward the end here. Paul says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul here, as he's wrapping up, he comes back to this idea of uh, riches, and he's warning those who are rich against two temptations that can accompany wealth. One is arrogance. He says not to be haughty. Uh, Wealth can cause the rich to despise others as if their wealth were not a gift of God. And then he mentions false security uh, when he talks about the uncertainty of riches. Uh, Riches can become the center of a person's hope as if perpetuating their wealth were the key to life, right? The goal can become to maintain the wealth once you have it. Uh, So you can become obsessed with not losing it, right? As if this wealth were itself the thing that is bringing you life and joy and happiness um, and everything. Paul makes two comments to reorient our perspective as we think about wealth. And the first is right at the beginning. He says, as for the rich in this present age. So he's saying here that material wealth 
is of limited value because it's limited to this present age. It has a very short duration. Kind of like the, the value of bodily training he mentioned in chapter 4 versus the eternal value of godliness. That it only lasts for this lifetime, which is but a breath. Far more valuable are eternal riches, which do not correlate necessarily to material wealth in this life. So he's kind of lowering our value, the, or the, the value that we place on material wealth uh, by describing it in this short time frame. And then, again, the uncertainty of riches, right? That the idea that wealth is inherently uncertain. We read Matthew 6, said, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where what happens? Moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Right? It's, it's uncertain. It's constantly being lost. Uh, you can have tons of wealth one day and be stripped of it the next. Right? We see this every time the stock market crashes. People lose it all. Right? Uh, Proverbs 23, 5, wealth will sprout wings like an eagle and fly away. That's such a great imagery. Um, this is why you can never have enough, right? Because it can always be lost. And so it's foolish to place your hope in something as fleeting and temporary as wealth. But Paul gives us the antidote then. Instead of putting your hope on the uncertainty of riches, he says, to put your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So God is the true provider for our needs. So God is ultimately the one who provides for our needs. Right? He uses means. He uses the salaries, the jobs, uh, the wealth we have to provide for us, but he is ultimately the source of that. Right? So we need to understand that uh, and look to him as the provider for our needs, not the wealth that we have in the bank account or the high-paying salary. Right? So he is the one who provides us everything to enjoy. Um, and, critically, the ability to enjoy those gifts, which is a, a key part of contentment, is that we can actually enjoy the good things God has given us if we are contented. And then verse 18, he's describing what is the proper use of wealth. So he's talking about this, the mindset that we have of looking to God, and then what are we to do with the wealth that we have? He says they are to do good. Uh, to be a blessing to others. Those who are rich should be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. Um, the idea is that we are stewards, right? Everything we have has been given to us by God. And so our mindset should be one of using those resources in his service uh, for the good of others. I think when he references uh, treasure, storing up treasure for themselves in verse 19, this makes me think of Matthew 6 again that we just read and talked about. Um, and he's saying essentially that generosity now equates to storing up treasure in heaven, which cannot be lost. So he's proposing a quite a bold long-term investment strategy, if you will, uh, that we should trade the earthly riches, which are going to be lost, for eternal riches in heaven, which will last forever. And when he says, take hold of that which is truly life, it sounds very uh, similar to what we said before about taking hold of eternal life. And I think the meaning is exactly the same. He's saying we should demonstrate our eternal citizenship and adoption into the family of God in the way that we use our wealth. Right? So rather than being caught up in the trappings of this world that wealth can buy, instead, make your calling and election sure by your generosity, by being rich in good works, by using the wealth well for the glory of the kingdom. All right, and the last two verses here, coming full circle... O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you.
So we're coming back to this initial theme that he's been describing uh, in, at the very beginning, and this good deposit is the gospel. So Timothy is to guard it, to protect this good deposit, to protect the truth and purity of the gospel for the sake of his own heart and also for the good of the flock to whom he is ministering. That he is to protect both himself and his hearers from this irreverent babble and the lies of false teaching, which lead one astray, as he's been describing throughout the whole letter. And so Paul has charged him repeatedly to fulfill his calling by rejecting the lies of false teaching and faithfully proclaiming the full counsel of God and then living life accordingly. And grace be with you at the end is such an apt closing because this is exactly what Timothy needs in order to guard that deposit and in order to fulfill his ministry. And God's grace is also what we need in our own lives as we endeavor to fight sin and to strive for virtue and to reject lies and to hold fast to the truth. So no one perseveres on their own strength, but through God's strength. But we can take heart in this, right? The same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you, in the person of the Holy Spirit. So we have that promise. All right, we are out of time. Thank you very much for your attention. We made it all the way through First Timothy. Let me pray for us, and we'll go to worship in the next service. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We do thank you again for your word. We thank you that you have called us out. We pray that you would uh, give us grace to adorn the gospel with our lives, uh, to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Uh, we do pray again for uh, contentedness, uh, that we would not succumb to the love of money, but that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and trust in you to provide for all of our needs. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.